You can subscribe to this show by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio, the live special edition. I'm Kevin Barrett at truthjihad.com talking about all of the wildly underreported perspectives on reality that deserve more attention. All right, let's move on to the second hour tonight with Dave Gary of American Free Press. I hear him on the line, so let's go ahead and say, hey, hello, Dave. How are you doing? Hello, Dave. Turn this off right here. Hey. If I could. All right. How are you, Kev? I'm doing well. Good to have you back. Good to be here, and sorry I couldn't be here earlier, but uh, as you know, I had COVID, and yeah. pretty bad. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's go ahead and and uh, go ahead and tell our audience that we both know COVID is real and unpleasant from direct experience. In your case, a lot more unpleasant than mine. I've had COVID twice for sure, maybe three times if you count February uh, 2020. I don't. That might have just been a flu. But last summer and now again, uh, just over the past few weeks, um, I've uh, I've had it and uh, I can't smell anything right now. I tried to sniff my coffee grounds the other day, and uh, it doesn't smell like anything. It's that's kind of un, uh, unpleasant, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's like a really nasty, uh, peculiar uh, flu. At least the way I experienced it. But you, Dave, you you went through some serious uh, COVID uh, life and death stuff. So maybe you could fill fill us in about that. Sure. Yeah. I, um, the way that I was told that I had it was that, and it happened, um, a year ago in August and my wife and all of us got it. My wife, myself and our son who was, uh, 14 at the time and in Florida where we live, as you probably know, and as the listeners know, uh, DeSantis, um, the governor, had opened up these um, these facilities where they would administer the uh, monoclonal antibody infusion injections. So anyone could go, and I think even people from other states, and they would get this shot, and you know it was shown to really uh, you know be very effective against this this bioweapon. And so we had, we didn't know, you know, we were just exhausted, my wife and I. In about two days, our son was fine, naturally. And we were exhausted, and all we wanted to do was sleep. We didn't want to eat. I actually lost my sense of smell and taste, but it was literally only for a few hours. It was weird. Uh, So we went to this... um, this facility, uh, I drove there. I don't know how. My wife says that today. Don't know how we did that, but we got there, and this was Labor Day. This was September 6th. And my wife got the shot, uh, the injection, the monoclonal antibody infusion injection. They wouldn't give it to me because my oxygen was too low, they said. Now, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have demanded that I got that thing, but yeah, that's crazy. It, what, what, why? Why would they not give it to you? Because your oxygen's low. I would think that would just mean you need it even more. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know why. Uh, 
why they did that um, for sure. Uh, but supposedly the oxygen had to be, you know, a certain level and, uh, you know, they measure it with the like the oximeter and it just wasn't, she said. I remember I didn't know what that was, but I remember looking down at that machine and, you know, that little finger device and uh, it was at 90 and she said it was below 90. But again, I didn't know anything. So I told my wife when when we left, I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. So that's when we went to the military hospital nearby uh, because I'm ex-Navy. Uh, it was an Air Force uh, on an Air Force base. And uh, they gave me that rapid test and it came out negative. And then they gave me the, I guess, the more thorough one, even though these tests are nonsense, but, uh, you know, where they shove the thing up your nose, not into your brain like you've heard. It wasn't wasn't anything at all. And, and that came up positive. And so they admitted me right away. And, again, that was um, uh, September 6th. Maybe now you're, did you know what your, you said your oxygen was at like 90% or something like that? Yeah, it was at like 90. So, because usually example, you wouldn't need to be hospitalized at that, uh, at well, 90. I, I, I wouldn't need to be hospitalized, but uh, because I couldn't get that monoclonal antibody infusion injection, which in two days my wife was fine, because I couldn't get it, I, I had a feeling that things were going to turn for the worse. And so I was with COVID, you know, I even hate to say the the name, but with that thing, uh, they isolated me in, in a room on a, you know, on a floor because there were, there were people who had it and uh, you could have no contact with anybody and they had to come in and wear like, you know, Suits, you know, anti-contamination suits and gloves and masks. Man, you know, Dave, you're, you're a braver man than me. I, I would I would be ter- terrified to go to the hospital in those circumstances. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I <clears throat> I went to the to the military hospital because I had been there I think once before to get an X-ray, so they sent me there for that. I think it was an X-ray, and I remember how efficient they were. You know, because these are Air Force people dressed up in uniforms. I mean, it's a regular military hospital. And they were very, they were unbelievable. They were great. Uh, as was the civilian hospital that I was in afterwards. I can't say enough about the hospitals and I especially can't say enough about the nurses. I mean, I, I never knew anything about th- that particular industry. Uh, but I was able to be in the, in the hospitals and the rehab facility for one week shy of four months. I was able to obviously get, you know, a very close up view of what these people do. Uh, and they are just, and, and not all of them, a hundred percent of them, but close to that. They are just unbelievable. Wow. Now, so, so almost four months. How, how did that happen? Yeah, it was that bad. So, from September 6th, I crashed, uh, I think it was um, like a few weeks later, uh, maybe two weeks later, 
and I crashed and I went into ICU. So they were trying everything on me. I even got the monoclonal there, but I think it was too late. Uh, they tried everything on me, all these therapies and breathing things and, you know, a respirator type things. Uh, not the, uh, not the actual ventilator yet. But what happened was that I was, I was declining and I so don't. So it, it was your, your oxygen was, was down like, just was was staying down and going lower. Was that the main? Well, yeah, my oxygen had, you know, my lungs were attacked Mm -hmm. by this bioweapon. Yeah. Because of that, I was requiring a high flow of oxygen to stay alive. Um, So, for example, uh, today I'm still on oxygen, but I don't, like right now I'm not using it. And I can walk, let's say, you know, to the kitchen and I'll get out of breath and I could get a little bit of oxygen. Now, before this, I never had anything like this or never really had anything wrong with me physically, except for an accident I had when I was in the Navy, but never had any problems. I don't smoke. I don't drink. uh, So, I mean, that helped. Um, But I was getting about 15 liters and that's how they describe it, of oxygen, that type of flow. I needed it. And I had I'd crashed really bad. I was declining to the point where <clears throat> one of the doctors said that you need to go on a ventilator. And so my wife, and again, I don't even know if she was there. I think she was there because it was after the COVID was done. After like a week, I was clear of COVID and I could see my family. And uh, but I vaguely remember this, that the doctor was saying that he he would suggest that I go on this ventilator. And my wife was worried about it because of everything we had heard up to that point. And I told her, I said, um, I said, hon, I I think I need to go on this thing because I could tell that, you know, obviously I. I wasn't improving. And she said, she didn't want me to, but she said, uh, if you promise that you'll, you'll be back. I said, I'll, I'll be back. And I didn't know, but, and I had no idea what I was about to go through, but I did it. And so they put me on the ventilator. And what they do is they, they poke a hole through your throat to put this device in and, so a machine is breathing for you. And I went into ICU. I don't remember anything for probably about a month after that. Wow. And then I, because I couldn't breathe on my own. So it was necessary to do that. Uh, next next thing I, I knew, I woke up maybe in November uh, at a different hospital. Uh, while I was in ICU, And I was heavily sedated, uh, or even before that, while I was at the military hospital, they were telling my wife, you know, you might as well, you know, say goodbye to him because he's not going to make it. And stuff like, he's not going to make it past tonight. So I remember one time she told me, and I still don't know all the stuff that, um, that happened. Uh, because I wasn't 
conscious and I just haven't had really a great urge to find out. Uh, but uh, one time uh, she told me that she was about to leave for the night. And I was, of course, uh, heavily sedated and in ICU and unconscious. And the doctor told her right when she was about to leave, you know, that uh, he's not going to make it tonight. He'll only last a few more hours. And she got angry uh, that he would do that right when she was about to leave. And she looked at him and she said, he's going to make it. And she left. And, of course, she didn't know if I was going to make it. But that's what she felt. Um, the, the problem was I had, I guess what they call is acidosis and they were worried that my organs would fail. So it really, it didn't look good. Uh, they transferred me to a civilian hospital, uh, because they couldn't do anything more there. And that where I was, was, uh, Eglin Air Force Base, which is here in the Florida panhandle. And they transferred me to Pensacola to a hospital there, specialty hospital. And that was in like October, I guess I got there, uh, in, um, in the middle of October. And then, like I said, I think I woke up in November sometime and, uh, I was still obviously on the ventilator and a ventilator isn't like some kind of a, you know, like a big contraption that, you know, like is like a bellows, right? Opening and shutting, opening, closing and pumping air in you. Uh, but it's like a computer. Uh, and so while I was out in Eglin and in this Pensacola hospital, I was having these incredible hallucinations, which I don't really know how they came about, but, um, you know, they, they, they happened and they were just, inc they were unbelievable. And they were so powerful that when I finally came to, I had great difficulty separating the hallucinations from reality. What, what were, what was the content of the hallucinations? Well, primarily what they were was, and I pieced this together afterwards, was that when I was in ICU, I, I would see somebody without really registering it. And then I would take that person that I saw and then I would, I created an entire, uh, let's say mini series around whatever, whoever I saw and they became characters in my hallucination. And to the point where I was like, I really got to know these people so much so that once I had come to and I was improving and I got to the point where they were going to remove the trach out of my throat and put in a smaller one to prepare for me to eventually get off the ventilator, which again, they didn't, they didn't know that I would, uh, you know, get off the ventilator ever. Uh, just as I was talking about earlier when that doctor said that to my wife, and he said that, uh, you know, if, if he said, he didn't say, uh, a few hours. Uh, he said in the, in the long term that I would most likely not survive because my wife, if she knew, uh, that it was only a few hours, she would never leave the hospital. Uh, but again, like I said, I don't really know. And, uh, maybe one day I'll find out more about it. There's even videos of me in ICU that I haven't even watched yet. 
uh, and pictures and stuff. So what happened was the, you know, the, the two uh, head nurses came in and they said, uh, you know, this fellow Steve is going to come in and take out your trach and put in the smaller one. And I said, okay. And so Steve came in and when he came in, I said, oh, I, I know Steve. Uh, we've, you know, we've worked together for, for several months. And, you know, Steve kind of looked at me a little, you know, confused. And I said, you're, you're a police officer, right, Steve? And, uh, he said, no. I said, do you, do you know me? And he said, um, well, I've only, I've only seen you once. And that was an ICU. I said, what happened? He said, I was nearby you and you're, you opened your eyes and you, you asked me to, uh, throw some water in your face. And I said, why? And you said, you know, because I have to wake up. And so that was the only time I saw Steve. But in my hallucinations, Steve was an old friend. And we were literally working together at certain places. So, you know, the mind is unbelievable what it can do. And it did that. And one time, one of the doctors who I saw, I guess, uh, in my hallucination, he was murdered. And when I saw him one time, uh, I looked at him like, oh, God, I have to tell him, right? Because he's he doesn't know that he's he's going to die. And I remember I told my wife that and she didn't know what I was talking about, but I thought she did. And. I ended up not saying anything to the guy, but I was very sad that here this nice doctor uh, was going to get shot and killed. So the hallucinations were just uh, those. That part of it was, you know, pretty much like an everyday life hallucination where, you know, you're interacting with people in different environments. But there were other parts of the hallucinations which were not as fun. And uh you know, the scariest part, the scariest phase or section of the hallucinating were was the hallucination where you were only hearing things. And you that was where I got to the point where I said somebody got into my mind and I can't get them out. And I'm going to have to live like this for the rest of my life. It was it was literally torture. You know, the sounds, the talking, all the voices all at once and trying to figure out what they're saying. And it just repeated. And it was just it seemed like it went on forever. Uh, but fortunately, after a few weeks, I wasn't thinking that, you know, Steve was my work buddy and um, people were trying to kill me, including the nurses. That was something, too, that uh, I thought that some of these nurses were literally trying to kill me because what I saw in the hallucinations, 
So I, several times I didn't think I was going to leave the hospital alive because someone would kill me. It sounds like you could almost construct a a science fiction scenario, a Philip K. Dick kind of uh, alternate reality story where, you know, you're, you're seeing stuff from, from other timelines or, you know, you're getting mixed up between worlds or something. Sounds. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was unbelievable. And then when I did get the ventilator out and I was improving, which again, it was a shock, especially, you know, to the nurses, because uh, most nurses, I think, as I've learned, you know, they only care about one thing. They want the patient to get better. And that is where they get their satisfaction. And because in because of this bioweapon, these nurses have seen and across the whole world, they've seen so many people die and they've seen so many people whose families had to suffer not being able to get close to them ever, you know, and they've talked to these families and they were the connection that they had and they've seen a lot of things. And it's, it's been very hard on the people I've talked to. And I imagine across the whole world, what this thing has done. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so this of course cuts a, kind of against the grain of a lot of the discourse in the alternative media where, uh, like, you know, when I bring up that, say, Robert David Steele died of COVID in a, in a Florida hospital, uh, often people respond, well, he probably died of the bad treatment. You know, he was, he was inappropriately put on a ventilator or what have you. And I've heard, you know, I've, uh, had other friends like John Shuck who died of COVID and I've heard the same thing about him. I mean, it's, one never knows. You know, whether bad treatment could contribute to somebody's death. But it seems like there's kind of a reflexive attempt to uh, belittle the lethal danger of COVID, which, you know, it's not obviously this is not a bioweapon that kills a super high percentage of people. But, uh, you know, this one in 200 or maybe one in three or 400 kind of lethality rate. It's still, it's, 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 that's not good. I mean, that does, you know, a lot of people are going to die when something is, is killing one out of every, so over, however many hundred people. And I think a lot, a lot of folks really, uh, who've, you know, seen that some of the reaction to COVID, uh, these containment measures have been relatively ineffective or counterproductive or harmful in and of themselves they have a tendency to try to downplay the uh, lethality of COVID itself. And, and so, you know, your story is uh, cutting against that, that kind of discourse. Um, have, and, you know, you've, you're, you're part of the alternative media too. Have you noticed that your colleagues or people in the alternative media have a hard time accepting the reality of what you're describing? Yeah. Well, actually they were, many of them were shocked because it happened to me. And what I heard was that from a lot of them was that you were the last person who I thought that would ever happen to. And some of them, even uh, after they found out what happened to me, they went out and got the, um, well, I'm going to put quotes around vaccine because we know it's not a vaccine because they never isolated coronavirus. They got this shot. Um because of well, wait, 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 wait a minute, David. Whether it may or may not be a vaccine, that's one question. But but I think that that story of non isolation and so on—that's nonsense. That's uh, uh, that's complete BS. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yes, 
Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it it's, it's been just as isolated as any virus has been isolated. And so then some people say, well, there's no such thing as viruses. But again, this this goes back to what I was talking about with Ron Unz in the first part of the show, that when they can get you chasing, you know, rabbits down the wrong hole, <laughs> then they can get away with all kinds of things. Right. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, as far as like, um, you know, big pharma trying to isolate it. Um the coronavirus, they haven't had any success with that. That's, no, that's not true. I've, I've had Merrill Ness on the show explaining COVID's been isolated, uh, isolated literally thousands of times in hundreds of different labs all over the world. Compl- I mean, without a doubt? Yeah. I mean, just well, by the definition of isolated that is used in vi- virology, the same way that they would isolate any other virus. Now, if you want to claim that, oh, that's not isolation. Oh, isolation would be extracting a purified soup of X number of virons uh, without any uh, dilute, you know, any, any other matter in, in the test tube or something like that. You just make up nonsense like that all you want and then say, by your definition of isolated, it's never been isolated. However, by the definition, definition of isolated that's used in virology, COVID has been isolated uh, thousands of times in hundreds of labs around the world, as uh, Merrill Nass has explained, taken, painstakingly explained on my show and elsewhere. Right. I guess, and you know, an indication of whether or not this, uh, these shots are effective is that obviously they're not uh, because you have people catching it over and over again even with those boosters. So um, in that sense, uh, I guess it's not like a, a typical vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, I would just say it's if you want to call it a vaccine, that you know, you can define vaccine however you want, uh, but um, it's not a very effective vaccine, especially in the long haul. That's Yes. Uh, and not only is it not very effective, but it seems likely that the uh, the side effects are much much worse than almost all other vaccines, and they far worse than we're being told. So, yeah, I, I think there's a real issue around the basically what's been the failure of these vaccines, uh, or so-called vaccines. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that, I think so, that's that's a real issue. I, I mean, yeah, and I and I just want to say this also that uh, not once. Did anyone, any doctor or nurse, say, did you get the vaccine or do you want to get the vaccine? In fact, some of the military doctors were pissed off at how certain therapies were being censored by the government and by the media. So these were good people. These are good people who are doing what they're doing. I, I couldn't do what they do. I could never be a nurse or a doctor. I mean, it's it's not a fun job. I mean, I couldn't control my bowels for most of the time that I was there. They were constantly cleaning up my, my piss and crap. I mean, I felt bad that, but you can't, you know, once you're down like that and then you come back up, you can't control stuff like that. It took a while for me to be able to do that. But I want to, um, just summarize this part of what we're going to talk about by saying that I, from September 6 to December 10, I was hospitalized. On December 10, I was transferred to a rehab facility. 
And on December 30, I got out. So I was there for three weeks. I was still on high oxygen. I was able to get it down, though, because otherwise I would not be able to leave because you cannot transport somebody with a high flow of oxygen. They just don't do that. And I came home with oxygen in a wheelchair and a walker, and I could walk maybe 10 feet, and I have to rest for a while and recover. And I was like that for a while. Now I can, you know, I can walk obviously a lot further, but I'm still winded and I'm still trying to recuperate. And I was just at the doctor uh, not too long ago. And he said that uh, the CAT scan and the MRI showed significant damage in your lungs. So I, I can feel it. There's something not right. But I'm still improving, and I think that over time I might get back to almost where I was before. And, you know, I'm going to keep doing that, obviously. I mean, I need to do, you know, exercise more and do stuff that's going to help, and I, and I will do that. But right now I'm very fortunate. Many of the nurses who saw me throughout that time, when they would look in the room and see how I looked so much better. Many of them broke down and, and cried. Um, it, wow. That's a, that, well, that's, that's really wonderful. It, and it's a long, you know, long rehab you're doing. Then, you know, may I pray for your, your full recovery that, and it, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, it I, was, yeah. it was tough. It was, it was not fun. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I just experienced a tiny, tiny fraction of that. You know, when I had COVID last summer, my, I, I was weak, uh, for about maybe six weeks. It, you know, I got it in early July and I wasn't starting to feel more or less normal until, uh, into September of last year. And, uh, but I, I, I've kind of kept exercising and stuff and got back to, you know, pretty much, uh, exactly full function. Um, yeah, since, and kind of the same, same situation. I got it, got it again. And, uh, you know, feeling like crap, but, um, I, I, you know, you, if, if you, I think the exercising is, is really key, uh, yes. you'll slowly regain that function, you know, if you keep kind of pushing the limits a little bit with exercise. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do that. It's just, even just existing, you know, just walking a few steps was almost impossible. Like I said, I was in a wheelchair and compared to then and, and now it's, it's it's amazing, um, but really I give all the credit to my wife. Uh, you know she really because she, she she pushed them to give to get me vitamin C and supplements. You know because they said he she, they they she asked them she said look if if he's not going to make it, can we do everything in a, can you do everything in your power to to try anything? And they said yeah, and that's when. Her and my family had come down from all all around the country and said, you know, give him this and, you know, a bunch of cocktails of uh, supplements. And I'm, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. If, if it wasn't for her um, and my family, I wouldn't be here. And if it wasn't for those nurses and doctors, I wouldn't be here. So, Dave, uh, Dave did they ever check your vitamin D levels? I'm sure they did. Yeah, they. I, I think they checked everything. Uh, yeah, it's, that's kind of the most you know, the, the most interesting evidence around COVID that I've seen is that 
um, the people with the really high vitamin D levels, they al- almost never get hospitalized or die. Uh, and so, you know, if, if people want to try to minimize their chances of having to go through what you went through, you know, I would say the very first things to do would be, you know, to get in better shape and uh, to get your vitamin D levels really high, either take uh, the level of supplements you need to get them up to the very high high end of the range or uh, do some, you know, kind of full body uh, sunbathing in, of the right, you know, amount so that you're, you can get it naturally. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we have tons of sun here in Florida and I try to get some. I need to get more, but I'm stuck here, you know, behind the computer or in front of the computer or however it is um, yeah. doing what I do. Uh, but let's switch gears. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we've just uh, <laughs> given folks, you know, the, the people who who are not at all worried about COVID, uh, we've just given them a different side of the story than exactly what they've often heard. Let, let's let's try a different side of the Sandy Hook story as well, because it's an interesting moment, kind of for you know, for you to be coming on the show to talk about uh, the Sandy Hook, uh, which you know, we just saw libel judgments against Jim Fetzer. Uh, and uh, now Alex Jones uh, owing what is it like fifty or sixty million or something in a, a punitive judgment, uh, and you were saying that you f- feel somewhat maybe responsible for this in that you were the original publisher of Jim Fetzer's book Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, and maybe you can talk about how you came to publish that, uh, and and then maybe also uh, talk, talk about. Um, the issue of whether Michael Collins Piper might have been right when way back when this happened, he was warning us and telling us that the bad guys were spreading nuggets of disinformation to lure us into going down the nobody died path uh, for their own purposes. Of course, Ron Unz just wrote an article uh, talking about uh, Mike Piper's work on that issue. Um, and then so, you know, maybe just as many of us in the alternative community have have uh, gone uh, somewhat down the wrong path with certain COVID issues. Maybe that's also true of Sandy Hook. So what 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 got you into the Sandy Hook issue and, you know, how, describe your journey uh, through that. Sure. Yeah. So uh, and I miss Mike. Uh, Mike and I were close uh, and I'm I, I'm not at American Free Press anymore. Um, I had to resign in November of 2019 because I'm just I, I'm just too busy with my publishing stuff and and other things I'm working on. Um, but I, I'm looking at you know your your website where you talk about um, Ron and, and myself uh, and uh, talk about what what Ron said or and what Mike might have said the crisis management conspirators mesmerized and manipulated American patriots and other skeptics via a nonstop wave of Sandy Hook factoids that quickly spread like wildfire across the Internet. I don't know if it it was like something purposefully done. I think that a lot of people were bothered by Sandy Hook. And I think there's still I know that they're still bothered by Sandy Hook because a lot of things just didn't make sense. And so I don't think it was, uh, you know, some sort of, as, as said here, crisis management conspirators. I don't think there were, anybody was conspiring to say, oh, let's 
Let's give them information about Sandy Hook. Let's talk about it nonstop. And then they're going to come to these ridiculous theories and then we'll be able to make them look bad, you know, a la Cass Sunstein. But, you know, I think that the media itself, which is probably uh, the I'm sure I'm, I'm convinced of this. They are the most dangerous poison uh, to our republic, uh, the media. I think that the media likes stories like this because, as you know, that saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, so they love shootings. They love the gore. They love to report on it. Uh, so I think it was just a matter of that. And then you had people who were looking at Sandy Hook and going, wait a second. Why is this supposed father, uh, Robbie Parker, why is he laughing if his daughter was just blown to bits? I don't get it. Why is he laughing? And then all of a sudden they're saying, "Okay, you're on. And he straightens up and gets all serious. I mean, even that alone is enough to raise eyebrows. So I think there are a lot of a lot of examples in Sandy Hook that didn't make sense to a lot of people and they still don't make sense to a lot of people. There are others who say, well, all that stuff's been debunked. So, you know, what are you talking about? I don't think we could control and I don't think we should want to control what people feel. And I think that this whole Alex Jones trial is a travesty because of that. I'm not a fan of Alex Jones. But the way that I got introduced to Sandy Hook, which was what you asked, was that Jim Fetzer had showed me over Skype that um, this this fellow, this former school safety consultant and former uh, Florida State trooper and so on, uh, he was asking questions about Sandy Hook and he got a visit from some uh, detectives in his uh, hometown in Florida, who told him to stop asking questions about Sandy Hook. And I thought that was ridiculous. That is this true? And I said, Jim, could you give me the guy's uh, name so I could, you know, contact him and contact info? And he did. And this was, of course, Wolfgang Halbig. And I called him up and we spoke and we did an interview. And that interview was placed on American Free Press. At the time, I was the um, web editor for American Free Press. And so I remember I placed the interview up after I edited it. And I never edit for content, just for like conversational fillers and whatever it might be, somebody coughing or sneezing or a dog in the background. And I put it up at like nine o'clock at night and at that point, I found out later from Wolfgang that he was getting calls because he gave out his phone number in the interview, which the uh, big tech has taken down. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put it up myself. I was just talking to Wolf the other day, and I'm going to put that interview up so people can hear it. And the reason is, is because that interview did something that many of us don't experience. And that interview went viral. And you can't control and you can't predict when something like that is going to happen, but it did. And because it went viral, 
the guys over at InfoWars and, and gals over at InfoWars heard it. And because they heard it, because it was a compelling interview, and Wolf did, it didn't have anything to do with me. You know, my guests speak like on your show, like 95% of the time, and I don't do interviews anymore. But um, Wolf was doing the talking and he was, you know, believable and it was compelling. And so that's why InfoWars began to cover it. And that's why I feel that I'm somewhat responsible for the Alex Jones lawsuit, because during that trial, this part of the trial, it damages part of the trial. They were talking about that. They had uh, deposed somebody, uh, a video deposition of one of the uh, reporters over at InfoWars who said that, you know, it was that American Free Press interview that got it all going. And that was the interview I did with Wolf. So in some way, uh, if that interview didn't go viral, then there's probably a good chance that InfoWars would not be involved in this. And they, because they put a lot of stock into what Wolfgang had to say. Later on, they, they changed their tune, but there's still a lot of people who believe Wolfgang and they like what he's saying and they trust him. So, you know, again, I think it gets back to, we're supposed to live in America. We're supposed to be allowed to think what we want to think and say what we want to say because it's somebody, it hurts somebody's feelings too bad. Just don't listen to them. You don't like Alex Jones? Don't listen to him. Personally, I don't like Alex Jones. I don't listen to him. Maybe he has some good things to say. I don't know. But I just don't like it. I'd rather listen to something without the bullhorns and without sound effects like your show. It's just, uh, you know, information that you can, you know, get from somebody like you and your guests and then make a decision like reading a book. But, you know, Jones didn't deserve to be sued like that. There's no reason for it. If Neil Heslin uh, and his ex-wife uh, didn't like it, well, well heck, <laughs> they never even listened to him. Jones, I think, mentioned Heslin's name once. There were no damages. It was a complete travesty. But these are political decisions that are made. In Jones's trial, this particular one, the jury didn't find him guilty of defamation. The judge did. Right. And, and same, it, same, same with Jim Fetzer as same well. With Jim, exactly the same thing. Yeah. And the judge in Jim Fetzer, Fetzer's trial, which I was involved in, as you know, that judge... The way that he attacked Jim recently was that he used some kind of a rule that your judges are really not supposed to use, which is called a sham affidavit rule. So when Jim uh, get, did an affidavit on something and the information he gave was not correct, he innocently thought he owned some property like domain names for domain names. He testified that he owned them, and he didn't, and then later on he corrected it. Well, the judge, instead of going, look, he made an honest mistake, he corrected it. No. What did the judge do? He used this sham affidavit rule, and the, the judge gave those domain names, the four domain names, which Jim Fetzer did not own. 
One of them we owned. Two of them were on the open market. And the last one, somebody else owns, who I don't know who it is. But the judge gave that property, those four domain names, to Lenny Posner. How do you do that? How do you assign? It's completely completely insane. Well, completely insane. But it's because he used that sham affidavit rule. He used the law to do this. So he shouldn't have done it because that sham affidavit rule should be used with extreme caution. He knows that. He knew that. But he did it anyway. This way he could get it done. Oh, that's not your property? I can see it's not your property. I can go on the Internet and see those two domain names are on the open market. That's okay. I'm going to give these four domain names to Lenny Posner. And he did. What what a joke. There there have been a a number of uh, things like that happening in the Fetzer trail. Well, you know, my perspective on this is a little different from yours, Dave, because it seems to me that the surviving parents of Sandy Hook victims, and we are assuming that, all there really are uh, victims. People really did die there, and I haven't seen evidence to convince me that they didn't. So I would argue that uh, those people presumably would have a right to sue for libel if someone, let's say Alex Jones or Jim Fetzer, had in fact uh, lied in a defamatory way by saying that they were crisis actors and their children hadn't really died. So to me, that those lawsuits in and of themselves are not really problematic. Uh, that is, that's precisely what's supposed to happen. Libel is, in fact, a, an exception to protected speech. However, my problem with these trials is that neither Alex nor Jim seems to have gotten that fair trial. Neither one got a jury trial on whether or not they actually did commit defamation by lying. And it should be up to the uh, the plaintiffs to prove that Jim and Alex did lie deliberately or uh, through whatever they call it, reckless disregard. That is, they should have easily been able to tell what the truth was, but instead they went ahead and lied about it. Uh, so that should have been proved, and then they would have been found guilty of defamation. Uh, but that never happened. There was never a fair trial in which Jim or Alex could defend themselves by saying, well, here's why I believed what I said at the time. I certainly wasn't lying because I really believed it. And here's the evidence that I saw that convinced me. And now I see it. However, you know, uh, that's but but making that defense that at the time I spoke honestly, uh, I gave what was my actual judgment about the case then based on this evidence. So I was not lying and therefore I didn't commit defamation. That defense uh, should, they should have been able to offer that defense and provide evidence to support it. And neither one was given that opportunity. So where I see the failure here is not so much that there was a libel trial. That's fine. These good people have Lenny Posner has a right to sue for libel. The problem is that there wasn't an actual fair trial over the issue of libel in which the defendants could defend themselves. And that's outrageous. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm still amazed at how the, uh, these courts um, have made a travesty of justice in these cases. Yeah, I think you're right, uh, Kev. You know, you're exactly right. And I think that the reason that the the travesty exists is because when you get involved in something like this, it's 
very politically motivated. You know, judges are, you know, lawyers, right? I mean, they were, they were lawyers. They're not anything special. They're just wearing black robes, but they're lawyers. And they're, you know, the lawyers themselves are officers of the court. So that's why it's so hard to get, you know, a lawyer who's going to fight for, let's say, the First Amendment. Uh, this is a political hot potato. Nobody wants it. The judge in Jim's trial could never have ruled for Jim because the headlines from the poison media would be Wisconsin judge believes nobody died in Sandy Hook. And you know that that would have a trial. He he didn't have to make that ruling that there are no contested facts in the case. So therefore, I'm just going to accept the the plaintiff's facts and uh, find him guilty without any trial. But he kind of had to. Because no, he didn't. Next, he could have let there be a trial. Why not? Because the next headline would be, after that, petitions circulating to remove judge from bench. No, I, I don't think that would happen if he allowed a trial. It, it would happen, like, if he had made his finding in favor of Jim rather than in favor of Lenny, if he had said, okay, we're... Uh, there are no contested facts in this case. All of Jim Fetzer's facts are, are the correct ones, and I'm therefore dismissing the case. Yeah, then he would have been lynched by the media. However, if he had simply refused to make that ruling and instead allowed a jury trial for libel to proceed and then allowed Jim to defend himself, I don't think he would have been lynched. Perhaps, but I think he he had control of the whole matter from the very beginning. He He bifurcated parts of the the whole case on purpose, I think. So I just don't, I feel that he didn't want to get himself in a position where he couldn't control it. You know, my lawyer, because we had to have a lawyer because we're a company and a company can't represent themselves like Jim and Mike did. My lawyer, soon after he got involved, he told me to settle. And I said, I'm not settling why would I settle? This is First Amendment. We didn't do anything. This is America. I'm not going to settle. And the reason he said that was because he, had, he has been practicing law for a while, and he saw how this judge was handling certain matters, and he got spooked. He felt that the fix was in, and he was right. So when a judge can do what this judge did to Jim, by completely ignoring, like you said, the fact that the innocence or guilt needs to be decided by the facts and by a jury. When a judge can do that, which they can because they have discretion, a la the sham affidavit rule, or what we saw that female judge in Texas do to Alex Jones, which that was so rare that they've never even seen that type of a ruling before. We know that The reason they did it might be because there's some kind of a star chamber operating behind the scenes or that they just realize themselves that this is a political hot potato. They don't want to be involved in it. It's going to jeopardize their judicial career. Let's just find these guys guilty. They're ridiculous. How could they think nobody died here? That's it. You're guilty. Nobody's going to complain. The poison media is not going to complain. Only a couple of people in the alternative media are going to complain. Not your average man on the street or woman on the street. They think it's disgusting. Look at all the hate mail we got for selling. Nobody died at Sandy Hook. Once we were publicized by the poison media. So I think it's a political 
decision that they made and they did it based on realizing that they could that could cause great damage to their careers. So where do you think Alex Jones will go from here? Uh, Ron Unz was suggesting that this could bankrupt his media empire and put an end to his work. And I wonder if it's possible in today's Internet world to really silence somebody like Alex Jones through these financial penalties. Uh, at, at some level, he theoretically should be able to keep putting out his show uh, one would think, um, even, you know, in the face of these penalties, given the bankruptcy laws, which he's obviously uh, going to be using and is using already. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that this is going to shut him down and, and silence him. Uh, what do you think? I definitely don't think it will. It's not silencing Jim either, and it shouldn't. They should be allowed to well, that's, that's for sure. I, I wouldn't even speculate on Jim ever yeah. being silenced. <laughs> Gotta love Jim. Um you know, Alex, I don't know. I've never met him. Uh, like I said, I don't listen to him, but watching the trial, I got to learn a little bit about him. He's a smart guy. He was making, the company was making $800,000 a day at its peak. I mean, that's obviously very significant for somebody to be able to do yeah, that. I guess maybe I should start uh, selling right. testosterone start supplements. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, this guy is obviously a survivor. And people want to hear him. He's got a huge audience and he's likable. Um, I mean, there's some things that obviously that are annoying to a lot of well, people. He, he's entertaining. I mean, he, he's even, entertaining. You know, right. Even if he's exactly. annoying, he's still kind of, you know, hard to not listen to. Exactly. So I think no matter what they do to him and whether or not this verdict gets reduced to 750,000, like a lot of people are saying, somebody sent me a, uh, a photograph of him. He's enjoying himself somewhere in like Omaha, Nebraska at a resort in the, in the pool and in the bar. And he looks really happy. So he must know something that we don't know. So I would, I would suspect that he's going to bounce back, you know, quickly. If all of the broadcasts that he's done, you know, this is one of the few times that he's been hauled before a court. He's probably doing something right. And like I said, I don't really care for the guy, his style, but I care for the First Amendment, and I think that, you know, he should be allowed to say what he wants. And if somebody, you know, has a beef with that, then bring it to court. But like you said, Kevin, let's have a fair trial. Let's have a fair application of the law. And it certainly was not that in both these cases. That's right. If, if any media outlets deserve to be dragged into court over lying, uh, I think, InfoWars is way, way, way down the list. Uh, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, all those people probably are way up high, much Absolutely. higher on the list than InfoWars. Well, well, thanks so much, uh, Dave Gary. It's been great catching up with you, and it's so wonderful to hear your inspiring story of uh, surviving a well, what sounds you, like a, yeah, a near COVID death sentence situation. I mean, just really uh, a horrible uh, ordeal you've been through, and and you're sounding real good. And uh, Thank you, God willing, you'll be sounding better and better. We'll get you back on here to follow up on some things in the future. I would love it, Kevin. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. And I'll tell the listeners to go to uh, moonrockbooks.com and moneytreepublishing.com and turningthetidepublishing.com and check out what we do. Okay. Sounds good. I'm sure some will. All right. Take care, Dave. God Thank bless. You.
That's Dave Gary and Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com doing this live show every weekend back next weekend, same time, same channel. God willing, until then, have a great day.